0: Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Focusrite, supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians, which enables the high-quality production of music. Focusrite, sound is everything. And now your hosts, Joey Sturgis, Joe Wenisek, and Al Levy.
1: Hey everyone, how you doing? I'm Joey Sturgis, and with me, as always. <laughs> is A.L. Levy and Joel Wanasek. That's us. Yo, the uh, Grammy nominations came out, which is exciting, I think. Did you guys look at it yet? I
0: didn't get a chance to look at everything, but I did see two things that made me happy. Number one was that August Burns Red is on there. And then number two, that somebody who is subscribed to what we do also got. Uh, an engineer nomination That's uh, awesome Yeah, I'm I'm actually going to go to the Private Producers Club right now And find who it is so that we can uh, congratulate him on here One second Scrolling Mr. Jack Mason Officially got a Grammy nominee for engineering work on J. Cole's 2014 Forest Hills Drive So congrats, Jack Mason That is awesome I did not yeah, know yeah. that <laughs> I did well. He just
1: posted it two hours ago, so I guess I hope, he he didn't know either. I hope uh, people start paying more attention than Grammys. I think they really are trying to make a good effort to really fix what was wrong. Because I know there was a couple years in a row where Best Metal Performance was basically a joke. And uh, if you look at the nom- absolutely look at the nominations this year, it's so much better. You've got August Burns Red, um, Cirque. Lamb of God, Seven Dust, and Slipknot. And that sounds pretty metal to me. I don't know about you guys, but... Uh, absolutely. I seem to remember that the joke
0: in the metal category started with Metallica many, many years ago when they lost to Jethro Tull. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was like the uh, the beginning of the downfall of metal and the Grammys. But I think that it's good that just the Grammys in general are trying to, uh, to get it together because music industry needs it. And there's so many other things for people to watch, so many other award shows, uh, other types of award shows that people just care about more these days. It's a good thing that the Grammys is trying to get that quality back and become relevant again.
1: Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to say was, I think a lot of people need to maybe I know the Grammy makes a really good effort of trying to educate people about how everything works but you know things get lost in translation and and people only have a short attention span but uh people should definitely try and go out and educate themselves on how the Grammys work because there's still a lot of confusion especially in some of the categories and for example I wanted to clear up one of the categories it's called best rock album and you'll see in this year's nominations you've got James Bay sitting next to Slipknot Now, most people are going to look at that and go, what the fuck? But the thing about the best rock album is that it's the only category that can cover all heavy types of music. They don't have a best metal album category. They only have a best rock album category. And so within that circle or that realm lives metal, rock, and all forms of that stuff. So that's why you see James Bass sitting next to Slipknot. It's actually correct that those are there because you're representing the different types of Music in that part of the world, that part of the music genre. So don't freak out when you see Death Cab for Cutie and Slipknot going up for the same award. It's just simply, you know, limited space for categories. You know, they can't have best rock album, best hard rock album, best heavy rock album, best metal album, best speed metal album. Like Yeah,
0: you know, I think if we're gonna talk about the Grammys, we may as well get our guest in here.
1: Absolutely. And we don't know how to say his last name, but we're <laughs> so gonna we're, we're gonna learn ask. together. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, welcome to the show, Fred.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: All right, so you were saying that your name is actually super common.
2: Oh uh, yeah, the story of, of the last name Archambault. And so, you know, being born in Montreal and then growing up in the States, you know, it was uh, a great way of of people to make fun of you. But so I was doing this record, Valiant Thor, and we were wrapping up. And I think the band was playing some shows in LA. And I I went out to go see them. And we were on their RV. And it was the band, myself and uh, their booking agent and this beautiful model by the name of Holiday. And obviously, everybody wanted to talk to the model. I'm a married man, so it didn't really matter to me, but, uh, (laughs) you know, and she goes, and the band goes, this is our producer, you know, Fred Archambault, and and she was like, her eyes lit up, she goes, oh my God, you're an Archambault? And I was like, well yeah, fuck yeah, of course I am. And so she just, she would not uh, stop talking to me. You, know, you just feel like a million bucks afterwards. You're like, okay, right, cool. I still got it. <laughs> and, uh, and then literally like a few months later, my wife and I are in Montreal and we're walking around and I hadn't been back in a long time. And the tower records of Montreal is a store called Archambault Music. And so she thought I was of this family. And I was like, oh, that, that's why she was talking to uh, me. <laughs> yeah, that, that explains
0: it for sure.
1: So for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Fred Archambault, he's worked with bands like Atreyu, Avenged Sevenfold, Alice Cooper, Eyes Set to Kill, and also, um, which I learned recently, you did live sound for Late Night with Carson Daly.
2: Well, yeah, it's not necessarily live sound. It, it's uh, I guess I'll just jump into it real quick with that uh, narrative is... I record and mix back at my studio. So basically what the television show is, it's Last Call with Carson Daly. It's an NBC late night show. And I've been doing it now for about four seasons. And the seasons are kind of cut up into a fall and a spring semester as if like you were in school or something. So it's about eight months of work. And the show isn't shot in a traditional studio like Fallon or um, any of the other late night shows because of the budget. So basically... We just roam around L.A., sometimes New York, sometimes Texas, and we just grab interviews. And then the musical segment is, let's say a band—like uh, tomorrow, there's this band on Hollywood Records coming into town. They're playing the Fonda Theater. And I roll in with like a 48-channel kind of mobile Pro tool system. I record their show— we film it and then I bring it back. I usually have a couple of weeks, you know, to kind of produce it and tweak it and mix it and kind of get it off. So it's not necessarily the live, but if that, it's not like I'm doing live mixing, but I'm doing like a live like recording uh, as it yeah. were so that's been a really interesting um, it's kind of like a nice like side detour for my career of you know making records and kind of a and A&R-ing talent and doing kind of all the things that we do it's kind of just kind of fell in my lap and it's it's been cool and a <laughs> side note it's kind of like You know, I'll say this. I'm not afraid to say it, but it's kind of kept me away from doing some shitty records that I would have (laughs) taken. You know, like there's there's one band uh, there's there's maybe hopefully you guys haven't worked with them, but there's a metal band from LA that's female fronted and they came to me very early and I was like,
0: I know exactly who you're talking about.
2: Yeah, and I was like, I don't I don't get it. Like I get it to a certain extent. I wish them luck, but I don't want to be associated with this. So (laughs) (laughs) and and they they do well. They kill it, but it's just not my thing so it kind of of shielded me and then it's kind of made it like you know I just take the money from the show and I just reinvest it into my career and reinvest it into unsight artists and uh, so it's kind of been a blessing and a curse but the blessing outweighs the curse as far as workflow and with that show I mix about like no joke, like two hundred songs a year.
1: Yeah, wow. wow plus that's awesome. my other
2: songs. I'm I'm up to like three hundred songs a year plus. So it gets your chops going, you know. And that's the yeah. cool thing. And I was talking to Joey about it when I saw him out in LA was you know, that's what I love about what you guys are doing and now branching out with this nail the mix and unstoppable recording boot camp or you know, website is you get, we all get stuck in these like ruts. And especially when, when I'm working with the volume of work that I'm doing, you have your thing. You're like, okay, do this, do that, in and out. And Joel, I was watching what you were doing on uh, this uh, Nail the Mix thing, and I was just like, I got to rethink whole... You know, I was like, fuck, man, I got to rethink some shit.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Why do you say that?
2: Well, I love, like, the one thing that I'm trying to incorporate in my thing is the way um, you're working with the bass DI and splitting it and, you know, into kind of like crossover frequencies and doing that stuff. I was like, oh, that's genius. I never thought of doing that. And I started doing that the last week. Like, I've done titten mixes with it. It's really cool. It's just like, you know, it's like, because the bass sometimes is just like, okay, let's just put the bass in and then move on. But now it's like, (laughs) let me, let me tailor some like cool, cool bass shit going on and it's
1: more control yeah more control. And, and that
2: technique Joel that you showed really I was like okay this is hip this is cool this is yeah exactly it's giving me more control and more like of a blend it was really you know things like that I'm still going through it because it's 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 really long and it has so much info but it's helped me kind of get out of my rut a little bit you know well thank you appreciate it
0: that's great to hear that actually brings up the question how would you go about bass before seeing that like what how would you get it to both stay? stand out and also provide the thunder.
2: Well, and this is, I'm talking about, I'm going to talk about live, the live recording multi-track stuff that I was doing, is, you know, they tend to give me a DI, which is always great. I find them the mic end of, like if they mic... A bass rig and you know here's the other thing hopefully the mic is in the fucking right spot which you know some of these <laughs> guys just don't do it you know or maybe they mic it to where it works for them you know but but there's been right. other times when i i literally walk on stage and i just kind of politely like just move the microphone and i kind of look at them they're oh hey thanks man thanks for doing it. It was like yeah it was pointing at the fucking snare drum yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, um, so with the DI, so I tend to take the DI's and the live thing to give me clarity. I I tend to do away with the microphone unless they're doing something really cool with it. Like they're putting an effect on there that I'm not getting with the DI that's very, you know, proprietary. So I'll take that and just really, you know, heavily kind of low pass or or high cut that. So I kind of get some of that ambience from the the thing, but, you know, I've just been like for the DI, I've just been, okay, LA-2A, maybe some amplitude, try some different SVT modeling. And then, you know, I hate to do it and I hate to admit it, but the Chris Lord Algae, like the the audio suite plugins, like they're actually kind of rad. I feel like cheating every time I put them on, but (laughs) I think they've got their place. Yeah, and so that's kind of been my go to is that thing sometimes just really freaking works really well. But now so I'll do that and I'll do my normal thing and now like I have a mix up right now that I was working on a band called Ratatat. They're kind of like an instrumental kind of thing and I'll do my normal thing and then I'll do I'll duplicate two tracks and I'll do the thing that Joel was was hipping me to and then I just kind of see like okay, is this new thing working or is my old thing working and and Right now, the new thing's starting to win out, you know. So, so that's kind of how I was treating base, like really working with the DI to help give me clarity and uh, to kind of make it rise above. But. Again, some of this stuff, like some of the indie rock stuff, some of the rock stuff, it you know, the bass just kind of needs to sit there and not really peek its head out sometimes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Unless, of course, they're doing a high octave kind of fill thing, you know? But yeah, so that's kind of, and, and, you know, that kind of applies to records too, you know? Sometimes the bass just needs to sit there and, and uh, provide that kind of low-end thunder and not really get in the way, and... And other times you get some great bass players and it's like, cool, let's make this shine a little bit more.
0: I find that on heavy records specifically, it's really important to use that trick because sometimes if you don't, it gets very difficult to get a good blend of the heavy guitars with the bass and it starts to stick out like a sore thumb in a weird way. It's kind of the The thing of having bass that's way too clean on a metal record doesn't usually work, at least in my experience. So I think that that's a really, really great trick. That's interesting to me that it's new to you considering the amount of work you do, because I think that to us, that's like a super commonplace trick.
2: Yeah. yeah, And I think, you know, the trick that I was doing to kind of get some of that like marriage between low end and guitars was a third distorted track. I would, if I was producing the project or if I was even mixing, I'd reamp it, taking the DI and going through like a, like a Bogner Ubershaw or, mm-hmm. you know, 5150 yeah. through, through a bass cab to kind of get that kind of distortion. But now with that kind of splitting up the DI into these different EQ spectrums, you know, kind of like multibanding it in a way, I feel like, well, you know what, that replaces me, you know, doing the extra, you know, guitar cab trick, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, congrats on your Pensados Award for the Carson (laughs) Daly Show. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty cool. Um, So let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you got started. You're based in LA, which we all know is a pretty social area and requires a lot of networking to really get anywhere and do anything. So can you speak to that a little bit and maybe provide some kind of insight to our listeners who might be trying to come up in a town that's, that's pretty competitive as well.
0: Yeah. Like how did you do it without just being a total cheese ball? Like I know, you know, go to Nam and those cheese balls just bombard you.
2: You know what, dude, (laughs) like you guys are bringing up a thing I wrestle with every day and I talk to my friends about it as well. And it's like, how do you kind of, you know, self promote without feeling like a fucking use car salesman. You know what I mean? It's tough. <laughs> and and you don't want to you don't want to come off as desperate and like, I need work, I need work and you know, I'll do this, I'll do that. So it's it's really like I've always believed in and maybe this is being too romantic, but I always believed in if you do good work, it will leave a trail. And then that trail will find you.
0: But sometimes you need to light that trail up.
2: Yes. And that's difficult. And I think, you know, I'm probably the worst person at networking and schmoozing. I really am. Like, but I'll try to do it. I don't think there is a right thing. I think... The better way to do it is have like take control of your online presence and your online narrative, your digital narrative, which is something that if you kind of Google me, you're not going to find too much. And I'm trying to change that. I came from an old school like mentality of like, and some of the managers I've had, they're like, well, we don't want you online. We don't want people to find you that easy. We don't want people to know what projects you're doing because it was so competitive. If you were doing a band and let's say you're in pre-production they'd be fucking other producers sniffing around if they knew you were doing it, you know? And wow. I, I remember doing a record for Roadrunner and literally there was a producer in the parking lot on the way out talking to the band. <laughs> like, like, yeah. hey, man, if you get, Holy I, shit. I heard it's not going so well in there.
3: <laughs> heard you guys couldn't get through bass. Let me mix it.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I heard I heard some issues with some drums. <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, I think that's something that I battle with and I don't really have a a thing other than if you kind of network and you socialize from a real like honest place like and I always tell bands that I'm hanging with or if I'm at Nam and doing the thing I'm just really more interested in their story I'm more interested in the gear I'm not interested in like getting an endorsement or, or schmoozing that it's like hey what are you guys up to and if I feel like both of our self interests are going to align like hey let's do something and and the thing that helps and I wish I did this years and years ago was having my own facility where I can say to a band hey why don't you come up for a couple of days and let's do a track no strings attached let's not get managers involved let's just do a track and see if we like working together and to be honest that's a day or two of my time but dude I'd, I'd rather have that than than running around town looking at shows paying for parking buying drinks buying people dinner you know what I mean yeah so I feel yeah. like that kind of like if you have your own facility which I think in this day and age is super important whether it's a bedroom or whether it's a converted garage or or whatever that to me it's like hey let's do something you know let's um and I think everyone's usually you know pretty receptive to it.
0: You know that that's an that's interesting that you say that because one thing that I always preach and we always preach is giving people value in advance. And that goes, you know, whether you're trying to sell a physical product or a service like recording or trying to teach people how to record or whatever. These days you do need to give them something that will make their life better before they're going to become a client or customer generally.
3: I was going to say, I think that's an amazing point you brought up too, Fred, because I know a lot of kids and stuff that are like, oh yeah, well, how do I get bands in the studio? And you're like, well, you know, record some stuff for free, go to shows, scrap them up, get them in, form a relationship. And they're like, well, I'm not going to do that, man. And you're like, well, come on. And then you look at a rap sheet like you have, and then you're doing it at the highest level. What does that tell you? It works.
2: Yeah, and I think it's always about and, and you know, to go back to like giving value, you're always selling yourself on the project. Like, so you're going to campaign to get the record or to work with a band, whether they have a budget or not. And then you're going to fight to keep the gig. And then it's a fight to get paid. And it's a fight to your royalties. You know what I mean? It's it's really, it's an industry loaded with, with minefields. And if you don't have a passion for it, you're going to come up short. Again, like if you're not willing to go out to a show and, you know, corner a band and say hi and say hey you know it's kind of a douchey. like I'm a record producer you know like that's kind of stupid it was like hey you know I got a studio if you want to record some songs you know come on up I really love what you guys were doing and I did that a handful of times and those have been my biggest like successes like you know the this most awkward thing I see a band I'm
1: like same here actually
2: this band's fucking cool and I did their record and then it just it led to something else, led to something else. That's the, that's the important thing that I have to instill into everybody. An internship working for free will lead to something else. Working with a band that maybe didn't work out or maybe, okay, this is not really, it's going to lead to something else and that thing's going to lead to this. And then you're just going to look back and you have this trail. And then to me, and I think, Joey, you kind of like really have this thing is, is consistency. That's the thing now I'm starting to strive for is the consistent performance, whether you're coming at it as a co-writer to write a song like you guys had Kane Churko, like the consistency of what his material is going to be like, the consistency of what you guys bring to a project, and then the consistency of, you know, hopefully what I can bring, that is what's going to make you successful.
0: I mean, even with something like this podcast, we need to make sure, of course, that it's good, but that it's coming out every single week. Like we said, it would, or people will lose faith in what we're doing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing that I feel like, cause I think back in the day and I've had some big records, like to me, I thought like, cool, you know, you get into this business and you know, I'll, I'll get that Lincoln Park record and then it's easy street. And I kind of <laughs> came on the tail end of that. And it doesn't really exist where you're going to do a record and it's going to sell 10 million copies, you know? So to me now it's about like, how do you redefine success, but also like just how do you just become consistent where everything you touch is going to perform to a point where is really reliable and that, and that labels and managers and artists are going to want to work with you. And I think that is, you know, it's all about the the singles, doubles, and not the home runs, grand slams, you know? Um,
0: speaking to your example, actually, about Linkin Park, uh, Josh Newell, who is a good friend of mine and a great engineer who's done a bunch of their records, and he's done a bunch of other great stuff, like Avril Lavigne, he's the perfect example. You would think that with those credits, he would no longer need to push for work but he's always pushing for work he's yeah. do, doing Lincoln Park right now and he's still pushing for work Josh I remember <laughs> I
2: left NRG while he was he was interning and it was like oh the kid with the piercings but yeah that's exactly <laughs> <laughs> I love Josh Josh is, is fantastic and that's just case in point like he's killing it like he does these cool like I, I hope I'm not mispronouncing like intronaut records like he has yep. these really cool like intricate like kind of stoner rock prog rock records and at the same time he's working with ben moody and doing these huge fucking pop records you know it's yeah that that to me it's like you know i was talking to joey in, in la a little bit it's like you know that's the next generation that's the the voices the storytellers i want to champion and kind of bring to the forefront and that's what i feel like you guys are doing you guys are fucking doing it so you know what am i doing but uh Yeah. So that, that is, yeah. Josh is a great example of that, where you're going to work with that dude. You're going to pull from all those experiences. Like that would be cool for me as an artist. I'd want to work with with him because it's like, cool. Like show me all the secrets that, you know, the Max Martin secrets, you know, (laughs) (laughs) show show me all the, yeah. You know? And then, so yeah, it's, it's really cool.
1: So have you had, I know you talked a little bit about, you know, kind of the live sound, which isn't actually live sound, but, you know, remixing a live recording or whatever. Do you find big differences between doing that versus studio work? Because, you know, we we all expect sort of a, a modern production nowadays to sort of have those, those comps and the edits and the punch-ins and all that. What do you notice, the differences, the big difference? The
2: big difference is, oh, there's so many. The big difference to me is when you're producing a record mixing or engineering, you're really kind of like... You're hired by the artist. The artist trusts you. The artist is working with you for a reason, right? Now, yeah. when I'm doing this thing, it's a union position, and it's kind of a shotgun marriage. It's like, they're forced to use me, and they have no clue who I am. And if they were to do a little bit of searching, you know, the words Avenge Sevenfold come up. And when you're an indie pop artist like Grimes, who probably has no fucking clue who that is, or you're like, um, uh, what's another... Oh, it's another bad example. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you're the band called Naked and Famous, and they see like, oh, the metal dude's going to be mixing your stuff, there's this, the trust just goes out the window. So I'm fighting for the trust, but the main difference creatively is you're creating when you're making the record. I'm recreating, and what that recreation is is a moving target. So a band like M83 they were bringing the record to the stage and they really wanted it to sound like the record. And let's say I'm working with an artist like, um, I mean, guys, there's so many like Jake bug or, um, you know, any other artist. it might be kind of this weird thing where the record's completely different from the live show. And so, okay, now what do I do? So I have to interpret it. So it's more of like a reinterpretation instead of a creation. So it's a different hat. And, I don't have the comps to choose from. And, and to be honest, sometimes the vocals don't tune up because tuning a live vocal is really tough, you know, and I've tried a couple of tricks of filtering low end out of it because there's just so much swimming around a vocal live. You know, you have like the yeah. drums you have playback and if they're on monitor wedges, you know, you got like an in-tune keyboard but an out-of-tune vocal. So you tune the vocal and it's like, "Well, now the keyboard's out of tune you know you <laughs> kind of have to make those decisions yeah so those are the kind of like editing and performance tweaks that i face and and to be honest the prepping of a live track is way longer than mixing it and the other thing that i can kind of do sometimes and it saved me is like i record uh the sound checks and so i was doing this thing with the crystal method and they had like they're doing this like Kind of big anniversary show, and they were doing all their hits with like all the original singers. So they were doing like um, trip like I do with some of the Filter guys, and then they were doing some of their newer songs with all the the original singers. That's and we sweet. had this girl Dia Frampton who was singing on their new single. And at soundcheck, she just it was awesome. It was like you know it was one of those lightning in a bottle things. We're like, wow, this is going to be rad. And unfortunately, at showtime. It just didn't translate as well. Like she was still great, but it was a little off key and then the she fucked up the intro, it went twice as long. And so it was like I was like, Oh, what do I do? I was like, Oh, wait a minute, I have the sound check. Let me fly sound check in and that was really helpful, you know. So I can comp like that, very limited, and I can tune kind of limited. And then I can also re-sing. I've re-sung some background vocals, I've replayed um like violin parts I'll replay or, or horn parts I'll replay. And not necessarily replace, but like kind of like sneak in there and give it like a nice fullness and yeah. so those are the type of production tricks and things and recreation things and try to figure out does the band want the record or do they want this middle ground of recreation? And um and that's what I'm always battling. And then also battling the trust issue, like, hey, trust me to do this really great job for <laughs> you
1: guys. What I really like about what you're doing and what you said there is uh, it's kind of the approach that I like to have, which is, you know, I I think in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, it really doesn't matter how you get there as long as you get there. I really do like the approach of adding a guitar note here and there or adding a background vocal or sneaking in a little instrument here just to help things out. Now, you don't want to do that if you're working with like Dave Grohl because that's just, you don't need to. <laughs> <laughs> but uh with some some things need a little help i love when the producer gets in there and does that and there's uh i can't think of the guy's name but he mixed the uh, the new paramore album and um part of his approach was to actually add all kinds of instruments and I don't think they are they were even aware of it at first.
2: Well, that's my question to you guys, is like, with every new project, every new band, aren't you testing the limits as to what you can kind of add in the soundscape? That's what I always feel like. It's like, can I add this and see if I can get away with it? And then if they're like, like, yeah, that's rad, and then you just you start really opening the floodgates. Well, if you like that, then check this out, you know?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. totally.
0: Though I do have to say there are some older school metal bands that I've worked on that you can't get any ideas in (laughs) like uh, bands that have been around for like 30 years or something. Uh, it's not happening like they're, but in general, yeah, totally. I'm wondering like with all that prep you have to do, are you a one man show or do you have an intern or an assistant?
2: Yeah, no, I, I've been looking for that, that kind of help. And, um, yeah, no, that's that, pretty you, impressive. You, you do bring, yeah, well, it's, it's fatiguing is what it is. Um, <laughs> he's a machine. <laughs> you're telling me about something that, yeah, I've been trying to, it's so funny, like, Sunday night, I just got, last night, I just got these emails from Gary Newman, who I've worked with in the past, and he emailed me, he's like, oh, mate, like, last minute, I got four records that need to get mixed by January, and I'm like cool, let's do it. And then, you know, I still have a couple weeks of TV show mixes, and then I'm in pre-production for this record that I'm doing for Universal, so that's going to be part of the budget, is getting an assistant in to prep tracks, you know. <laughs> but yeah, you, you...
3: It helps. It's got to, right? Yeah, yeah. It takes a while to get them dialed in, but oh my god, it's a
2: game changer.
0: It, how many instruments do you play? You you just mentioned quite a few.
2: Well, I, Jack of All Trades, Master of None, you know, I came up as a guitar player, and I loved like I came from like old school metal shred stuff, you know, real poppy shred stuff like Vi and Snake yeah. and, and ACDC and all that kind of stuff, and and then I tried to be that player, and and I just couldn't shred, and so I went to Berkeley and I studied jazz guitar, and uh, I did pretty too. pretty well, and and then I realized I was like, you know what, all these other guys like grew up, they know all the standards and all twelve keys, like I just it's not part of my blood. I just kinda want to rock. So um and then I realized I really just wasn't a fast player. And then I heard this Bill Frizzell record, Nashville, and he doesn't play above like 70 BPMs. I was like, oh fuck.
0: I can He's phenomenal.
2: Yeah, you know, so so as a guitar player, I feel like and then when I left Berkeley, I don't know if you had the same feeling was you kind of had to unlearn.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I was actually really careful about what I would let them teach me. I actually, I didn't do very well academically overall because there were certain things that I just refused to go into because I felt like, Everybody was playing elevator music, and I was looking at the the dudes who were like in fourth year who had gone through all these courses, and yeah, they could play, but I totally didn't want to sound like them at all in any way, shape, or form. I did not want to poison myself with, with that garbage, so I was very, very choosy. About what classes I would go to. And uh, so I did great in the ones I went to. Of course, I failed the ones I didn't go to. Yeah. <laughs> but but that saved me from having to unlearn too much stuff.
2: Now, what years were you there?
0: I believe, man, I, like 98 through 2001 or something. Okay.
2: So we were there at the same time. Oh, shit. I was, yeah, nice. I was there from 96, 97 to 99, 2000 maybe. So uh-huh. yeah, we definitely passed... Passed ways somewhere. <laughs> That's awesome. Interesting. Um, yeah. Adam D was there at the time. I don't know if you, you were friends with him.
0: No, but John Mayer was in my ear training class. I'd never met Adam D at Berkeley though.
2: Yeah. And then, you know, who else I had in my class was, uh, I had uh, Tony Bennett's daughter in my class, Antonio nice. Bennett.
0: So, you know, who else was there when I was there? It was Gus G. Oh, cool. Yeah. He was there for literally one semester and then, the, he got the fuck out. So did you, did you finish or did you drop
2: out? So, so funny. Yeah. I dropped out so close. So towards the end, I I became a a MP and E student and I was already interning this is. I was. That's you know,
0: music production and engineering for anyone that doesn't know.
2: Exactly, and and, the, and at Berkeley you you can go to the college, but then you have to apply to this even smaller program, and it's I guess it's a little bit more competitive. So I got in, but at that time I was. Uh, I was interning at the studio called New Alliance, which I wanted to tell that story because it's really important. And I was also interning at a studio called Q Division. And I was working on records like Jane Doe by Converge and you know a bunch of records that you, know, you guys have talked about.
0: So you know Kurt.
2: So I knew Kurt at that time. And then I was uh, mixing live sound for this off-Broadway show called Blue Man Group and playing in a band that was signed. So it was like it was all these things kind of culminated towards the end, and I left, and I'm literally five credits shy. And when I went to the Pensado Award thing, I I, uh, I talked to this Berkeley guy uh, who's like the head of the MP&E department, and I was like, hey man, I, you know I'm a student there, and I never finished, but you know I did learn some stuff, and it was cool. And he totally like hustled me. He goes, well, you know we have this online degree completion, and. <laughs> And I'm literally, I'm sitting in this uh, meeting with Joey before uh, Thanksgiving, you know, it's like a heavy like music industry meeting. And I'm literally getting an email like, hey, maybe you should finish your degree. And I'm like, (laughs) "Uh." I'm also kind of voting on some Grammys right now. I don't know if I really <laughs> need this. But.
1: Yeah, perhaps not the most wisest use, to yeah. use of your time right there. Yeah.
2: So, but I wanted to go... You
1: just to, sell pick them.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to go back, like, you know, when it comes down to, like, people getting a start, and I, I just always hark on the internship, and that's New Alliance. Like, when I was at Berkeley, I, I did this class called The Studio for Musicians, and part of it was you had to book studio time. That was, like, your final project. You had to, like, form a fake band and go around studios in Boston and and book time, you know, and, like, do a budget and all that kind of shit. And I saw all these studios in Boston. I was like, this is fucking cool. I'd just rather work here and, you know, intern here. (laughs) So I interned at this place called New Alliance, which was right behind Fenway Park in this, like, dungy building. uh,
0: Man, I lived across the street from that. Okay, so,
2: yeah, it was the... um, I forget what it was called, but they had a bunch of rehearsal rooms there and a bunch of bands rehearsed there. There was a few studios there. Yeah, that's
0: where my band rehearsed.
2: And um, so I started working at the studio called New Alliance. And it wasn't much, you know, it was a basement studio with uh, a 24-track 2-inch and then a 16-track 1-inch and a Soundcraft 6000 console. And it just happened they would be recording all the kind of the cooler stoner rock bands. You know, Boston had like the the stoner rock thing and then they had the Cambridge, more heady, poppy stuff. And... So one of the bands that came in and I was interning, working for free and just any spare time I had, I was at the studio and I learned how to cut tape. I learned how to align machines. I learned, you know, all the names of the microphones. I learned how to deal with musicians. I met so many people. That's how I met like all the blue man group people. And there was this producer, Andrew Murdoch, who was cutting demos for this band called Godsmack. And so I worked on, and those demos became the first Godsmack record. And so working with Andrew and interning him, he became the super famous rock producer, moved out to LA and I followed him out here after my band broke up. And that's how I ended up working with Avenge. So that's just, that's the exact and, you know, and not to like be a dick about it, but like, you know, that's a record that I still get royalties on and and it was enabled me to buy a house. If I didn't fucking intern, I would have never made all these connections. So that to me is super important. And, why i always say like people like how do i do it? it's like dude find a studio it doesn't have to be big or small and just be willing not to be a fucking dumbass and <laughs> you know what i mean like taking initiative it's a lot of taking the trash out and cleaning coffee cups you know and and then you know laying in samples and session prep but that stuff really pays in spades it's like an investment of time it's like going to a show and recording a band for free hopefully it'll pay off later
3: yeah this morning i had a studio here with a guy who's got... He rents across the hall and he's got his own studio and I have mine, so we kind of share the upper floor of a building. And he was in here this morning complaining how he needs a new intern. This kid that was here last week is all talk. He's not going to show up. His other guy is lazy. He doesn't do this. And this other kid, this and that. And we're sitting here. We're like, man, it'd be cool to get somebody in this building who actually isn't a complete idiot who can show up on time and
2: actually wants to be here. Yeah, It's amazing. Yeah. And I think that's also like, and I think you guys would agree, like, isn't that part of the business though, too? Like, I, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I, I, when I moved out to LA, I was, I was a runner at um NRG studios. And I took a big step back from being like producing my own records out in Boston and being a second engineer at bigger places to be, you know, getting food for the dudes and lit, you know, so. uh,
0: (laughs) I mean, it's like working the mailroom when you're trying to get up the corporate ladder. There's entry level positions in any line of work. It's just how it goes.
2: Exactly. And we had, you know, a group of guys, I would say, like, I quote unquote, my my class of guys, you know, Josh Newell was part of it towards the end. And there was a couple of other guys. And it was amazing to see the dropout, like guys that were just working on fucking huge records. And just like a year later, like, yeah, no, it's not for me. And I was just like, fuck you. I would die to be in your position. I remember there was this one guy <laughs> who became like uh, Don Gilmore's like go-to, like second engineer. And then he was being groomed to be his engineer. And he was working on the second Lincoln Park record, like all these huge records. And he was just in the corner reading a book, you know, he'd throw a couple patches in the morning and then just read a book in the corner, you know, and not be involved. And, and then now, you know, he moved to San Diego to clean boats or whatever, but it's like, it really, the business kind of like will separate the wheat from the chaff as it were you know what i mean i think that's just part of the process with interns like some are going to come back and some aren't you know we get tested every day in this business and that, and i think it's like it's not like the greatest dudes that end up but it's the dudes that show up again <laughs> that, yeah. that becomes like i know right. i'm not great but i just show up you know what i mean so
0: yeah i mean <laughs> not to compare what we do to the military at all because clearly it's a whole different set of pressures But, you know, they have very similar sorts of vetting processes that, you know, they're try to make people fail so that the people who do actually make it through are the ones who you would want making it through. I feel like almost like the intern process is a similar sort of thing. Get them doing some super difficult edits, laying samples and all that, and just by virtue of giving them that – you'll end up with people that are good because everyone else will be gone within four days.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it's also like the people that take the initiative, like sometimes I'll have like, I'll have interns kind of runner assistants and a big part of their job description when we're, I'm in production here at the house is kind of client services, meaning like, make sure the coffee machine is stocked, make sure the trash is pulled, like, you know, empty out the ashtrays, you know, that kind of stuff. And the dudes that do that without me telling them are the guys I keep around and try to keep around for the next record when I have a budget for this and that.
0: Isn't that the truth? You know what, Josh? Newell, back to Tim again, what he told us is the way that he got the Lincoln Park gig was because when he was an assistant or an intern, he was the only guy who got their food order right, Yeah, and they <laughs> and they figured, if you can't get the food order right, how are you going to get drum edits right?
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly what, especially NRG, that's what you were instilled with, was this attention of detail, and if you didn't get exactly the food order right, or stocking the food in the morning you weren't going to get the patch right you weren't going to get the tube mic set up right yeah it it all kind of you know that attention to detail is really what uh, in the long run really kind of you know you fight to kind of keep in record making because it's such a long tedious like very focused job and it's it's like if you don't if you miss that oh shit the mic pre's crapping out and you lose a take or whatever you know so that attention to detail will be with you for the rest of your career you know
0: so, considering that there's less studios than you know before when you were coming up, what do you recommend that kids nowadays do in order to get internships? I mean, there's far less good internships available than there used to be, and far more kids going for them.
2: Well, there, that's the issue, isn't it? Right? Oh, yeah. Um, I, I get hit up quite a bit, you know. I think it's more about you know, finding like, you know, if I were really wanting to be. I think it's about finding, okay, this is the music I love. This is what I want to be working on and then finding that person that works on it and doing some research. Where are they working? You know, where are they do they have their own facility? Is it, you know, in their house? Or are they renting it? And so I think in the, at the end of the day, there's less big commercial facilities, but there's way more islands out there. Meaning like, you know, I'm an island, this person's an island, you know, we're all kind of scattered and we all have our these little digital workflow rooms, but in essence there's actually the separation creates more people working you know so i think it's about just finding those that's what i would do and then the thing that i didn't have growing up is stuff like this podcast and all these youtube clips you know and all this kind of stuff so you can really gain up some knowledge and i get some interns in sometimes and it's like they do some slamming shit they're like man that stuff actually sounds fucking good show me how you do that <laughs>
1: you know <laughs> Well, hey, we're going to jump off this topic real quick here. Uh, We're getting near the end, and we want to run you through the rapid fire, which Joel's going to lead.
3: Okay. All right. So we're going to rapid fire off a bunch of cool stuff, and you can tell me your choice for either tracking or mixing. And if you have any cool, really secrets of proprietary stuff that you do not want to share, we totally respect that, and thank you for playing. But if
0: you do want to share it, that's even better. (laughs) Yeah. Perfect.
3: (laughs) Perfect. All right, so
2: kick drum. Here's the uh, the one thing that I've been digging. So Beta 52, scooping out, you know, three four hundred always helps. But here's a new mic that I. I it's called the Mondo mic. It's made by Avatone. Not that many people dudes know about it, but I tried it out, and it was fucking rad. It's kind of pre-EQed, really aggressive. That's kind of been my go-to. That, and then the other trick on the mix end is DBX-160s. And yes. the trick with them, because I've had a lot of 160s, and they've gathered dust, and I rediscovered them maybe three years ago again, is low, for me, I don't know if everyone else would agree with me, is low ratios, like 2 to 1, 5 to 1, and, and just kissing it, and it's just like that to me. I'm like, oh, when I started doing that, I was like, oh, fuck yeah. Because uh, I was always yeah. like four to one and, and really kind of compressing it. And I was like, what the fuck's what? Why is everyone talking about 160s? They suck. And then I started like <laughs> maybe using them a little bit more conservatively. And I was like, oh, these are fucking rad. So
0: nice. I like it's that. It's great on snares too.
2: Kicking snares. Yeah. That's uh, on snares. I have uh, a set of um, Joel. I don't know if you do this. I was looking at your studio and, and, You seem to have a lot of maybe all you guys have a lot of external stuff, but I have external DBX one hundred and sixty XTs that live on the snare, and then I have external VU old school guys that live on the kicks. So yeah, that's exactly that's exactly it.
3: Yeah, that's sick. Um, I don't have a one hundred and sixty, but I'm tempted because AL is always telling me how great they are. I usually go for like distressors.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I have you know it's so funny. I have a distressor. I'm looking at it today actually, and. I just can't get my head around it. And maybe I got to relearn how to use that thing. Um, Cause I noticed that you were using them a lot. And a lot of guys are just, I just can't get my head around it, you know?
3: Well, I'm going to go distressor hardcore and nail the mix.
2: Oh, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to that.
3: So, all right, let's talk about room mics,
2: room mics. It's like, <laughs> do they get used? Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, mute is a valid uh,
1: choice. They do. They do on my, uh, my, Productions. Yeah,
2: it's so funny because like I, I've been, uh, it's like you try to work on them, and, and it, you know that's probably where the most expensive microphone is in the room. You know, if you're at a, a commercial studio, but I really, I haven't had much luck. But I will say I'm tending to favor um, ribbon microphones for that. So. You know, Royer makes all those cool ribbon microphones. And then if you can get your hands on, if you're at a big studio like, a, you know, an M49 or, the, you know, those old Omni tube microphones, I really like those. But I tend to go over stuff that's darker and low gain. Again, scooping 800 out, you know, it's kind of getting the boxiness of a room out. And then the thing that I do at my house, I have a small living room, is I've been doing uh, two SM7s, actually. Um, so... That's actually because SM7s kind of are are low output, kind of a little bit darker at times. So uh, I just mixed something this weekend that I had the SM7s in, and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. But to be honest, sometimes mute is is the thing that happens because I have so much (laughs) other ambience going with verbs and stuff and recreating that. And if the tempos are fast, I, I, I personally just can't find room for them, you know. No pun intended.
3: Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, how about heavy, distorted rhythm guitars?
2: Tracking a 121 and a 57. I know that's the cliche thing that a lot of people are doing, but that that to me works. It's a great balance. And then, um, to be honest, the thing that uh, is going to help you with distorted guitars is um, low cut or high pass, being aggressive with that. And then you guys kind of turned me on. I started putting L1s now on my heavy guitars. <laughs>
3: Yeah. I never
2: was doing that, and now you guys, like, hit me to that shit, and I'm like, fuck yes. And, we like
3: uh, our L1s, don't we? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you, tr- you gotta... And I didn't do this for a long time, and I started doing this in 2007, uh, is uh, tracking a DI with my rhythm guitars, just from an editing standpoint. Even if I don't reamp the guitar, it gives me that transient look in your DAW, so that is... Uh, heavy guitars you know grab that DI2 and here's my last thing about heavy guitars I was talking to 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 Joey about it was uh Dude, the Sims, you know, like Kemper or whatever you're going to use, Pod Farm, whatever. Like having a guitar player track through that is a total different reaction than having them play through an amp. I've Absolutely. I've Definitely. noticed they like really dial into their right hand more, and it's it's really cool. And and so I started doing that on the Atreyu record, and it was a total night and day difference how they were playing rhythm guitars, you know. And then if I wanted to reamp, I would, but. Yeah, I, I think the guitar DI, which is probably, like, you guys' old news, you know? It's like, oh, of course, we've, we've fucked with those for years. But to me, like, the guitar DI is, like, is like the most unsung hero of guitar recording, I think.
3: Yeah, <laughs> <Definitely>. oh, yeah. <laughs> All right, how about vocals? Singing vocals?
2: Singing vocals uh, is going to be, for me, I have this um, old stay level, this gate stay level. <laughs> And nice. it's the fucking shit. So I bought this thing when I was doing Wake in the Fallen. I bought it online in 2003. And it came to me and it just wasn't cool at all. And I brought it to the studio tech. I was like, hey, man, can you check this out? And he goes, it checked out okay. And it literally sat in this storage locker of mine for like, oh, a good almost you know, eight years. And I was going to sell it. And then I found this guy locally, David Kolka, and he redid it. And the thing's butter. It's like it's my go-to, and unfortunately, it's it's that very mute tube compression. It has a sixty-three eighty-six tube in it, which is yeah the same tube that you know the Fairchilds used. So there's very limited life to it. So it's you know I try to turn it off if I'm not using it. But that to me is that's my one secret weapon. And then um, you know and then shooting out the mic too. You know like SM7. I have a um, a manly ref mic that I tend to like. And then I also just bought this Dave Perlman, um, U47 copy called a TM1. So I have kind of a little bit of a different flavor. I have more of the hi-fi Sony 800 vibe in the Manly, and then I have more of the vintage tube thing. So that's my thing with vocal again, low passing it. And then on mix, I tend to favor like the slate dragon or 1176, like a, the purple MC 77s cool um i'll go hardware in that and i just fucking pin it you know just like (laughs) yeah be really aggressive with it and that to me is like the cool like jacket on the vocal as it were manly
3: compression all right, one more. We'll do uh, two bus. Anything cool on your mix bus?
2: Yeah, two bus for me is a Manly very which I abuse the fuck out of. Like I'm embarrassed. Oh, that's great, to, <laughs> yeah. I'm that's embarrassed to say it. And I think why it works for me is cuz it's I mix digitally and then this darkens things up a little bit, but I have it set up as it's, it's in compressed, but my settings are almost like a limiter. So it's like the output is pinned. It's uh a pretty fast uh release. I'm just looking at it right now. Super slow attack. The side chain filters are in. And I'm doing about two dB of reduction, but that to me is like I put that on and I was like, okay, there's a difference here. And and I'm embarrassed because I think I use it wrong, but fuck, it sounds good. And then <laughs> it goes through um a pair of like tube tech EQs. The uh nice the tube tech ones, you know, the PE1Cs, and again, very broad, you know, low end boost at 60 hertz, and then maybe three cycles or 3K, you know, boost that. And then here's the the one secret weapon I have. I'm sorry that it's taking me a while here, but oh, no,
0: that's great!
2: Is the SPL Vitalizer? This is a fucking cool piece of gear, and I was doing some artist development, and I lost this artist to a major label and to kind of a bigger producer. and But I was still doing kind of the other songs and whatever. And so I was getting these mixes back from this other dude, and I was like, what the fuck? These sound so wide and so deep. Like, what the fuck is this guy doing to his mixes? It's ungodly what he's doing. And then I looked up, like... You know, because everything's online, right? So I looked up his setup, and he was mixing through this SPL Mixstream. And on the Mixstream, there is a knob called Stereo Enhancement. And so I started investigating all this, you know, Waves has a, a one, an S1, I think it's called. Yeah. So I started investing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I I started investigating all this stuff, and then SPL just makes this unit called the Vitalizer, which basically is an EQ with a, a stereo expander in it. And it's a one of, if you get the piece of gear, if you get the plug-in, you're gonna misuse it because you're just gonna be like, oh my god, yes, wide, 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 wide. You know, you just want everything wide. And I think it's just an MS encoder, is, is probably what it does. But that to me is it, it adds that like 20% or 10% of finishing. And that stuff, all the stuff I'm talking about, goes to math mastering. And the only thing that doesn't go to mastering is I'll put like a maximizer from UA or the Steven Slate FGX to, I'll mix into that. So I know what, the limiting end result limiting is going to do. Are you
3: using the tube vitalizer or the solid state?
2: Yes, I have the, uh, the tube one, the tube version.
3: You're making me gear lost here. I'm looking <laughs> it up right now. <laughs> so. Yeah. no,
2: and, and even if you can get your hands on the solid state one, I bet that one's cool. I know a lot of dudes, if they, if it's not on the mix bus, put it on your guitar bus or something like that, you have oh, to sick, get yeah. like extra width out of guitars and then you can keep drums a little bit more centered. But yeah, it's, it's to me, it's like, uh, that's my secret weapon, you know, like, I'm not scared to share it because I think some guys will like it, some guys won't, but it really helped me. And it also has this um, low-end button, what is it called? Or It's called uh, bass compression and bass sound, right? And I don't use the compression end of it, but I use the soft end. So if you turn it to the left, you get the soft, and what it does is like subharmonic synth. So it adds a low octave to everything it's really cool so you use it sparingly and then like so in productions where i was adding sub bass and choruses to make it bigger now i don't do that because it's like oh, i'm going to get that low end from this knob you know it's a cool little trick that to me adds the low octave stuff and then if i have too much of it mastering will shave it off so i'm not worried about it
0: very nice so we have a couple questions from the audience if you don't mind this one actually is something that I'm curious about as well. And uh, I guess if you don't feel like answering it, I completely understand. But Jordan, and Embleton, and myself were wondering what was the approach towards working with Portnoy on Nightmare, given the really awful circumstance? Like, did you have to do certain things to keep the vibe productive? Well, I-
2: Well, here's the. I didn't work on the Portnoy record, but I can the little bit that I did work on that record.
0: Oh, that's what all music said.
2: Yeah, I don't know why I'm listed as an engineer on that one. Maybe because I did some pre-pro some stuff with that. But you know, I will say that going into that was a very difficult time for everybody. You know, Jimmy had passed away right around this time of year. It's actually coming up. I think it's on the twenty seventh, twenty eighth of December, and. I think he was such a he is such a such an amazing writer and amazing drummer that I think it was like fuck what do we do now so I think the Portnoy thing was I know that Jimmy was a fan of Mike I think Mike because everything was tracked demo wise on an e kit at Matt's house so all the parts were there right all the songs were there and then literally they took a Christmas break and. You know they were going to start in January, right? Yeah. They took the Christmas break, and unfortunately, Jimmy passed, and so, so all the parts were there, even some of the vocal parts that they ended up flying into the record. So I think Portnoy did a great job at copying. Jimmy had a cool swing in his cymbal hand or his hi hat hand that was really unique, and I think um, Mike did a good job at copying that. And then the other the the story I heard Matt was telling me this was because when they were mixing, they like they emailed me like, "Hey, what are those drum samples you use?" And I was I was using those SSD samples at the time, and it's like, "Yeah, here they are." It's like, "Yeah, we need them because." you know, the kick drums, Mike doesn't play as heavy through those double kick patterns that Jimmy did. So, so that was the one thing that I think Mike really had to like focus in and maybe didn't hit out of the park from what I understand, but everything else he hit out of the park. And I think, uh, he did his best to pay tribute. There's a lot of, you know, obviously they're not working together. There there was some other maybe bullshit that happened later on the tour, but that's really none of my business and But I worked a little bit on that in the pre pro and then as they were touring, I I was working with Mike on like show tapes and backing track stuff. But uh, you know, yeah, that that's a tough one because because Jimmy was just freaking great, you know.
0: I figure that when you lose someone that's that awesome, really the only thing you can possibly do if you're gonna keep going is get someone, you know, if you can swing it, get somebody legendary or someone that you can't really argue with.
2: Yeah, and I think you know the trick with that is you don't want it to outshine what the material is too. You know, you don't want mm-hmm. it to be the the Mike Portnoy show, which maybe it did become because he's he's pretty uh, great at promoting himself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I you know I think of him every day, and I think of the guys every day of like you know because for me, I don't know how you guys are, but he was like the first. Person I lost of my generation, you know, you know, you're used to maybe a grandparent passing or or something like that, but like when it's like someone who's actually younger than you or of your generation, it kind of hits you like, fuck, man, this is weird, you know. And that was the first one, and and then we lost Mick from 18 Visions, um, and there's been a couple of other, and even like recently with the Paris stuff, I had a lot of friends over there, they they lived, but uh, it was eerie, like shit, man. It's like how fragile stuff is you know you don't fucking think about it we don't stop and think about it and and then and then they're not there so yeah I always think of that guy every day and uh and the guys like man what? how how does that mean for the guys to go through it you know
0: yeah I'm kind of I'm amazed that they just kept going that that soon like I think that that's very very impressive like if you think about a band like House and Chains how long it took to Get that thing re- restarted. But, uh, oh, I remember waiting for that for so oh, long. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. And I love the new singer. I think that that album, yeah, did, that was phenomenal.
2: Yeah. They definitely had a resurgence. I think, you know, again, every every band and everybody agrees differently. Like, you know, AC/DC had a quick turnaround and, 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 you know, they got back on that horse and, and made a fantastic record with Back in Black. And I feel the same way with the Avenged guys, and I tell Matt this: I'm like, Matt, that is lyrically one of your best records, like hands down. Because I I don't think the lyrics were done when Jimmy passed. Like he was the music was done, melody, top line, I think was there, and I could be wrong. But lyrically, I think he kind of revisited. And to me, like, I tell him like, dude, that that to me is the heaviest shit you've ever written, you know, l- lyrically. Because I mean, Avenged, some of the lyric stuff in the past hasn't been really like, you know, they kind of paint a picture, but it's not like. You know, yeah. But yeah, that that nightmare record is like, okay, wow, that's something to be proud of, you know, because I can tell that you were going through some shit on that one.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess as far as questions from the audience go, here's one that's not nearly as heavy. Giovanni Angel is asking uh, So when you're working with a new artist, what are some of the things you always try to discuss first to get? them in the headspace to record, or even get yourself in the headspace to record them?
2: Ooh, I'm going through that right now, and I'm doing this rock record, called a band called Hell or High Water, and it's, it's branded from a Treyu side project that's more rock-driven. So it's really about getting into, for me as a producer, is, okay, where is this? Because we're making records, right? And we're not necessarily making music. Maybe the two are mutually exclusive, sometimes they're not. But So where is this going to live in the marketplace? Because at the end of the day, I tell artists whether I'm, I'm, they're signed or unsigned, is no one gives a fuck about your music, okay? (laughs) No, they don't. (laughs) What they care about is how can I market this, and there's nothing wrong with that. So you have to understand, okay, like where is this going to live? Active lifestyle, modern, alt, you know, whatever it is. So that's the headspace I try to get into as far as okay, what is the landscape right now? And what is this artist trying to do, and and so I try to get that going. And then, okay, what does the artist need? Do they need co-writing help? Yes or no? Do they need more sonic signatures? For this band, Heller Highwater, they're this modern alternative rock record, but they're going to be marketed as a um, an active rock band. So to me, it's all about how can I sonically make this the most unique thing possible. So. That's the headspace I'm in. They don't need songwriting help. They need a couple of arrangement tweaks, but sonically it's like, okay, what vocal mic? So I went down and I shot out like eight vocal mics on the singer. Okay, this is the one I want. Um, maybe this, we're going to use this on your background vocals. You know, so kind of getting a game plan in that. I want single coil guitars. I want fuzzes. I want plexi amps. I want, you know, flat wound on the bass. I want to do cymbals separate than drums on a couple songs. I want a 70s died, dead drum sound. You know, so those are the things that I start to game plan. Those are the things I start to get the band stoked on. And like, hey, check out this record. Check out the, the vocal treatment on this. The other thing is... Uh, I tell the band, especially this band, is like, I want you guys not to be comfortable. I want you to go to a room. We're gonna go to a room here in LA where a lot of great records have been made, and I want you to be uncomfortable. I want you to feel like you don't deserve walking into this room right now, because I want you to fucking be great. You know, I don't want you to be good. I want you to be great, and I'm gonna do the same because I'm gonna feel, you know, there's no excuses. If all these hit records have been done here, the shit should be coming out slamming. So I try to get the band pumped up in that that aspect. You know, of get them like off their asses and, and get them like, okay, fuck, this is game time because, you know, this shit lives on forever. So if it if it's like, you know, a cup if it's an hour just to get one part let's take the time to do it because it's going to fucking be there forever. It might just be a 32nd part or whatever. But so those are the the type of research things that I try to do. And, And that's my headspace right now. That's what I'm talking about is like just these sonic signatures of like, I'm looking to make this record stand out, you know? And sometimes you're looking to make a record fit into the lane that it's going to exist. So I don't know if it's different for you guys, but that's kind of where, you know, I try to game plan as much as I possible because producing a band, producing a record is such a commitment, such an investment. It's like an emotional investment. It's, it's you know oh, what yeah, I mean? Like, totally. And, and especially with my wife and I do some parts of the record at the house, like, you know, she lives through the shit too. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> you know? How do you so, manage to balance that, Fred? It's a
2: constant. I don't think I do a great job some days, you know, some days my work suffers and sometimes my marriage suffers. I think it's, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's a never <laughs> totally, win. Totally, totally. It's a fucking never win, but. You have kids? No, no kids, just dogs.
3: All right. You got the easy end of the stick.
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't dudes who have kids. I'm just like, what? I don't get it. i don't I don't see how you guys do that. It's uh, really hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, joel has got three kids.
2: Well, God bless him. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Fred, thanks for being on the show. and it was great to see you in l a and uh, meet you. And uh, hopefully, when I go back, we can hang out or something like that. Is there anything that you want to point people to uh, before we close this up?
2: I mean, not not really. I mean, I, I think uh, it back to what you guys are doing, you know, I know, I don't know how new the boot camp or Nail the Mix thing is, but I actually got to sign up for that. And, uh, but, you know, I, th- I just think what you guys are doing and, and the, the kind of the voices that you're championing, I really, I really do sincerely mean it. It's like, uh, thank you, you know, well, thanks. Thanks for saying so. that. Yeah. We appreciate yeah, it. Thank you, man. And, and the fact that you do open up your, your secrets or your tricks, you know, and some of that stuff is really cool. Cause some, some guys don't really do that. And, uh, it's cool to see that. And like I said, like I'm still going through this five hour, uh, youtube thing i'm just like oh my god this is this is heavy
3: (laughs) (laughs) awesome well we appreciate it it. thank you so much for being on it was really interesting talking to you
2: oh cool well thanks so much
0: yeah man thank you the
2: unstoppable recording
0: machine podcast is brought to you by focus right supplying hardware and software products used by professional and amateur musicians which enables the high quality production of music Focus Right. Sound is everything. Visit focusright.com for more information. To ask us questions, make
1: suggestions and interact, visit urm.academy/podcast and subscribe today.